0: Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffee House Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa.
1: And I'm Allison.
0: Today on the Coffeehouse Classical, we are again talking about musical gadgets, this time with the tuner being our focus. However, no discussion of a tuner can happen without a little history lesson on the concept of tuning. So, let's get on the same wavelength and jump right in.
1: As you probably know, different notes on instruments are different frequencies of vibrations through the air. Since ancient times, people have discerned that longer and shorter strings, or pipes, or drums, or whatever their instrument was, would result in lower or higher tones. In the medieval period, when we start to have better records of music, we know that certain intervals were considered consonant, and others were dissonant. The only true consonants were fourths, fifths, and octaves, which is still true today. However, in our modern times, we also regard thirds and therefore also sixths as consonant, whereas in the medieval period these were dissonant. The reason for this is due to how instruments were created and thus how wavelengths were created.
0: In these times, intervals were calculated using Pythagorean tuning, also known as just intonation. In this system, the octaves could be perfectly tuned using a mathematical ratio of two to one. End of note, perfect intonation means there are no audible beats to the sound when two notes are played together. In physics speak, there's no anti-nodes between the two wavelengths. And from these perfect octaves, a mathematical ratio of three to two could make a perfectly in tune fifth. From these calculations, the rest of the notes in between the octaves could be extrapolated. However, even though the math may be perfect, the other intervals inherently have antinodal beats that our ears would hear as dissonance.
1: To the church, the main purveyor of music at the time, these imperfections in the sound were unholy and could not be lingered on. We would like to emphasize this method of tuning was theoretically and mathematically sound, The problem with the system lies within human neurology and what our brains think we should hear versus what is actually being heard. But composers wanted to get more creative, and instead of writing Gregorian chant, they wanted to write polyphony, which would require more intervals to actually sound good together. The resulting method of tuning was called mean tone temperament. This system was based on tuning consecutive thirds rather than just octaves and fifths. The middle note, which is the third between any given two notes that create a perfect fifth, would be perfectly tuned to fit in a wavelength exactly in between the outer notes. However, in able to accomplish this, the fifth actually ended up being tuned down to slightly less than a perfect fifth, True, this would result in some beats, but the overall sound was more pleasing than what just intonation had previously allowed.
0: But this system had a big problem. You see, some composers liked to modulate keys, and you could perfectly tune an instrument to play in, say, C major. But due to the lowering of the fifths, If you suddenly modulated to play in G major, it would be wildly out of tune. Since G is the fifth of C, you lower your new tonic note, already starting off bad. So obviously, this wasn't the answer either. Finally, an idea was proposed that was a compromise, but worked pretty alright for most situations. Equal temperament.
1: In equal temperament, the 12 semitones, also known as half-steps, of the chromatic scale within one octave are all equally far from each other. And here we'll introduce a unit of measurement called sense. This is different from hertz, which calculates the exact frequency of a sound wavelength. Sense is what is used for tuning because it expresses the ratio between wavelengths, so it should theoretically be the same for every semitone. In equal temperament, every semitone is equal to 100 cents, and so every octave is equal to 1,200 cents.
0: Now that sounds like a pretty consistent system across all possible key signatures. Except that nothing was now exactly in tune. It was all just a very close approximation. But it was good enough for now. Keyboard manufacturers began churning out instruments tuned like this. Famously, Bach acquired one of these keyboards with new tuning and was inspired to write his collection of fugues titled The Well-Tempered Clavier. This collection features fugues in all 12 keys, because now that's possible. And in our modern times, we've tweaked the tuning a bit. If you've ever been in a high school or college-level ensemble, you've probably experienced times when the director has painstakingly tuned every interval in an important chord, asking musicians to purposely tune their notes up and down. Though the musicians may feel they are asked to play their instrument out of tune, they are really being asked to pull their instrument out of equal temperament for the sake of creating a perfectly tuned and antinode free chord.
1: Now we know that people have been trying to tune instruments since the beginning of music, but what were they using to do this? This is finally where our real discussion of tuners can begin. First of all, what was used as a tuner before electronic tuners were available? The device that served as tuners for century was the tuning fork. These devices are made of rigid metal and are shaped with two prongs of equal length and density. These prongs are connected at the base to a sort of handle. And this device allows you to strike one side of the fork, and the energy from that strike in the form of waves will travel down the prong and into the other prong so they are both vibrating. The waves of sound they then emit radiate outward from them. But if you move the prongs closely past your ear, you'll hear a deadening of the sound between the prongs where the waves hit and cancel each other out. You can find tuning forks that are either just this basic structure or that are mounted to resonance boxes to make their tones
0: more audible. It's simple to see how these basic instruments are used for tuning. A musician will strike the fork of a given note, they will then listen to this pure tone as they play the same corresponding note on their instrument. Careful listening is required to determine if there are any beats heard due to a discrepancy in frequencies between the fork and the instrument. The musician then adjusts the instrument as needed, either adjusting string tension or tubing length, until the two tones perfectly match each other. Once this tone is tuned, the musician will then compare the other notes across the instrument to this tuned one.
1: But that leaves a lot of room for error. One option would be to acquire multiple tuning forks that play different tones. Another option is to have an adjustable tuning fork that features special weights that are cinched around the prongs and can be adjusted up and down to effectively change the vibrating length of the prongs and thus produce different frequencies all within the same device. And this, of course, all became much easier in the 20th century when electronic tuners came on the scene, thus rendering tuning forks obsolete. Now, you could have any accurate tone produced with the touch of a button all within one small machine. And to tie into our previous episode, there are several metronome-tuner combination devices out there that are just terribly convenient.
0: Another advancement in the world of tuning came about with the introduction of electric-powered strobe tuners. Rather than produce a tone that a musician could match, these devices feature an input and visual output component. These are fairly complex devices, consisting of 12 wheels lit with LED lights. These wheels correspond to each of the 12 notes of a chromatic scale. The wheels are then powered to rotate at certain frequencies that correspond to the hertz of the given note they represent. Then there is an audio input, into which the musician plays a selected note. An additional wheel, also lit, then rotates at a speed that matches the exact hertz of the played note. The visual component is that now you have two rapidly spinning wheels superimposed over each other. If the frequency they represent do not match up, a strobe effect will be noted by the musician. They can then adjust their instrument accordingly until the strobe effect is gone, meaning the wheels rotate at the exact same speed, and thus the instrument is playing in tune. Now this can be a little bit difficult to visualize, so we've included the YouTube link in our episode description so you can see one of these machines in action for yourself.
1: These strobe tuners were a great breakthrough as it's sometimes easier to see that you are out of tune rather than to minutely hear that you are. The only downside to these devices is that they are often large, and they need to be plugged in to get enough power. The solution was found by having just an audio input that led to a processor that would then show on a screen if you were sharp or flat. Most modern musicians use this type of portable tuner, and nowadays they often tell you just how many cents sharp or flat you are.
0: Now, strobe tuners are thought to be the most accurate type of tuner, showing a difference of down to one-tenth of a cent out of tune. This, though, is somewhat unnecessary, as the human ear can only readily perceive a difference of five cents change in pitch. And now for our final topic of tuning discussion, and perhaps the part that means the most to an audience member. Why does the oboe always play that one long note before every performance to tune the orchestra.
1: The note you generally hear is an A, or if you're listening to a concert band, it could possibly also be B-flat. The A you hear is generally tuned to 440 hertz, and this is standardly the A just above middle C if you're thinking about a keyboard. And why this number and note, you might ask? Well, for slightly arbitrary reasons. According to research, organs that were built in the 1600s that still survive today have this particular A that's tuned anywhere between 377Hz and 567Hz. For reference, in the 440Hz tuning scheme, this could be the difference between playing an F-sharp to a C-sharp, with neither of these notes being close to our now standard A at all. So that means these organs would be essentially playing in completely different keys from one another if they happened to be in the same location.
0: But that was back before a time of widespread travel and communication. We see throughout history that as people, including musicians, traveled more and shared ideas, the need for a more unified pitch was required so compositions would sound good in all locations. At first, due to how instruments were built, the frequency range into which A fell most naturally was lower than what we see today, closer to around 422 to 423 Hz. So this is much closer to what we expect A to sound like now. If we were to hear this pitch compared to our modern pitch of 440, it would sound like the same note, but we could probably tell it was out of tune.
1: That is, if we directly hear the two pitches next to each other. If a given orchestra chooses to tune to a pitch different than 440, it's really no big deal as long as all the members of that orchestra are adjusted appropriately. The pitch of 440 became the unofficial official pitch in 1939 after an international music conference in London. There had previously been another unofficial pitch that had been used based on a recommendation from the French government that sat A at 435 Hz. Somehow this pitch got misinterpreted in England, and so English orchestras for a time were tuning to A439. And finally in 1939, the BBC recommended that 440 be used by all of their orchestras, just to set a standard for them. And this was chosen because 439 was a prime number and difficult for tuners of the time to accurately calculate and produce.
0: Now if you look around the web, you'll find some proponents of changing the official pitch to 432 Hz. The reasoning behind this though is a bit far-fetched. People claim this frequency is more quote, natural, and perhaps magical as iterations of it are found in nature and mathematical coincidences. These pieces of evidence are discredited when it is pointing out that 432 Hz is speaking about waves per second and a second is a completely arbitrary unit of time that we happen to agree is a standard. There is nothing found in nature that suggests what we call a second is related to anything.
1: Another argument to change away from 440 Hz is that the pitch is Nazi propaganda. (laughs) For the same reason some people feel 432 Hz is a healing and therapeutic frequency, they think 440 Hz is naturally destructive to the human mind. It has been falsely proposed that Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi Minister of Propaganda, wanted to instill fear and unrest in the minds of people through the use of this 440 Hertz tone. This is not true, and this tone is not a form of government mind control. Finally, in 1955, 440 Hertz actually became an official pitch for tuning because it was adopted as a standard by the International Organization for Standardization, the IOS.
0: But enough about frequencies and is Why the oboe? So there are several reasons why the oboe is the chosen instrument to tune. For one, its sound is loud and pure, so all members of the orchestra can hear it clearly. In fact, even when a piano, which cannot be tuned on the spot during a performance, is being used, the oboe will first take its tuning note from the keyboard and then play it louder for the rest of the ensemble. Another suggestion of why this tradition started is that oboes have a harder time adjusting the length of their instrument to tune it. So whatever they're able to play in tune, the rest of the orchestra should match it.
1: This tuning before a performance is a fine little ritual, but it seems like it's going against all that precise tuning information that we've just presented. But that is again if you assume tuners will be used during the performance. However, like metronomes, they are meant to be used behind the scenes, in a sense just for practice. Before going on stage, a musician will have preliminarily tuned their instrument with the tuner so on stage only minor adjustments will be made. And even though we strive for A440 to be our tuning pitch of choice, in a live setting sometimes conditions just don't allow for that. Hence, a group tunes together to make sure they're all on the same wavelength rather than each person individually tuning which could lead to drastically different pitch interpretations during the performance.
0: And finally, it's just a good message to the audience that something is about to happen. At this point, it's just so normal that even when you see live music, even say a rock band, there's some amount of note twiddling and ensemble togetherness before the first piece. So we hope you've enjoyed this second and, for now, last episode in our short series on musical gadgets. If you have, please share us with a friend. And if you're listening to us on Spotify, be sure to click that follow button. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa.
1: And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. Johann Sebastian Bach's Prelude and Fugue in E Minor from the Well-Tempered Clavier Book 1 were performed by Peter Bradley Fugon. The chant Recordé May was performed by the Scola Cantorum Gregoriana Assange, conducted by Arnold Den Tun. Chod was written and performed by Blair Moon. The 396 and 417 hertz tones were produced by Jean-Paul Garnier. The orchestral tuning was produced by The Real Deal in the Internet Archive. Verdi's Overture to Nabucco was performed by the DuPage Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. You can find The Coffee House on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.